This is Archive Atlanta, episode 53, The Temple. You're listening to Archive Atlanta, a history podcast where each week I'll be sharing a story about the people, places, and events that shape the history of the city of Atlanta. I'm your host, local tour guide, and total history nerd, Victoria Lemos. Hey guys, happy Friday. This week I'm covering the story of The Temple, which is the oldest Jewish synagogue in Atlanta, but it's also the name of the congregation with a story that starts all the way back in 1845 with two new Jewish immigrants in this little railroad outpost, it would span the centuries through world wars, several buildings, anti-Semitism, and an infamous bombing. When our early settlement of Terminus was named Marthasville in 1845, the first two Jewish settlers arrived. Jacob Haas and Henry Levi were peddlers and opened a dry goods store together in 1846. By 1850, the total population of the city was at 2,500 people, but only 26 of them being Jewish, mainly from Central European Germanic states. A decade later, the amount of Jews in Atlanta doubles, but we're still talking about 50 people, tops, so there's not quite the need to build a formal synagogue yet. Religious services were held intermittently, and then women taught children religious classes at home. This changes in about 1860 with the formation of the Hebrew Benevolent Society. It provided insurance, aid, and burial benefits to Atlanta Jews, and it was the organization that secured burial plots in the relatively new Oakland Cemetery. The organization operated out of rented rooms and halls, and it's really the first formal religious organization of the Jewish faith in the city. The amount of Jewish Atlantans had grown along with the general population of this rebuilding southern city. In the same year, the first Jewish marriage is performed. During the uniting of Emily and Abraham, the rabbi calls for the formation of the congregation. And in 1867, the group's name was changed to the Hebrew Benevolent Congregation, informally known as the Temple. At first, it had no rabbi. Instead, services were performed by laymen with enough fluency of the Hebrew language. The Torah scrolls were borrowed from congregations in Savannah or in Noonan, Georgia. The temple receives its first Torah in 1869, and then they find a hall to rent for worship. This hall was on Broad Street near Alabama, essentially what is now underground Atlanta, and they had about four to 500 members. The first permanent synagogue was built around 1875-ish, sometimes it says 1872, uh, and it was a Moorish-style brick and stone structure at the corner of Forsyth and Garnett, also downtown, but then again, remember Atlanta is essentially all of downtown because it's still pretty small. Reverend Dr. Edward Benjamin Morris Brown was the new rabbi and entered alongside President Levi Cohen. In an article from 1888, it was sharing the news that a rabbi from Augusta was making his way to Atlanta. Bringing with him his mother and sister, the congregation was excited about this new young leader, Leo Reich. He would stay for seven years, bidding farewell in April of 1895 and leaving the temple without a leader for a few months, as Rabbi Marx was not set to arrive until August. Rabbi David Marks was born to German immigrant parents in New Orleans, Louisiana. He was ordained a rabbi in 1894, and he came to Atlanta the very next year, at just 23 years old. The city's population had grown to almost 90,000 people, but less than 1,000 practiced the Jewish faith. Of those thousand, the majority were German, 
but the influx of Eastern European Jews had begun probably around the late 1880s. And the thing is, like all ethnic groups, these new Atlantans stuck together, living close to each other, speaking Yiddish, and starting their own Orthodox congregations. Um, and those mm, those two congregations, I think, were in Summerhill, if I remember that episode. Sephardic Jews would arrive in Atlanta a little bit later. With Marx's appointment at the temple, he led the synagogue to an official adoption of Reform Judaism, which is defined as Judaism that has abandoned the aspects of Orthodox worship and ritual to adopt to a modern social, political, and cultural life. Marx himself would not wear the ceremonial robes, and men were not required to wear head coverings during worship. As the first American-born rabbi of the first Jewish synagogue in Atlanta, he was very involved in Jewish causes, and he acted as a liaison to the Christian community. Before the turn of the century, so like 1899, he's fighting against the school board of the city, which would mark Jewish students absent on their holidays, and they also forced daily Bible reading. So he was going there being like, hey, not everybody does what you think should be done. He fought for Jewish prisoner rights in the federal penitentiary, which I talked about in episode six. Um, And just after the race riot in 1906, Marx was on the Civic League, which was formed kind of like a community organization that was supposed to understand the riot and why it happened. Rabbi Marx would see the temple into their second synagogue, built in 1902 at the corner of South Pryor and Richardson Streets, which was in the Washington Rawson neighborhood. I mentioned this briefly in the Summerhill episode, but the neighborhood, which no longer exists, was home to the most prominent of Atlanta's German of Atlanta's German Jews. I'm going to skim over this next part quickly, but if you haven't listened to episode 13 about Leo Frank and his murder, make sure you do that. Leo and his wife were members of the temple. Starting around 1910 with populist Tom Watson, who himself was a strict believer in black disenfranchisement, anti-Catholic sentiment, and he preached the evils of northern capitalist influences, unchanging traditions, you know, Jews are bad. The rhetoric was that Jews were financially exploiting farmers and laborers. And there's lessons to learn from these times. The people of the early 1900s were scared, and their jobs were disappearing, and their way of life is changing. And so there's definitely this clinging to racist populism, hating on Jews, Catholic, and Northerners. Jews in Atlanta dealt with anti-Semitism, even when it was minor at times. But the year 1913 and the national attention of the Frank case would change many things. Add in their rebirth and the rise of the KKK, and being a Jewish person in Atlanta was not easy. The Temple Synagogue was robbed in 1915, and it was vandalized in 1921. As a congregation would continue to expand and outgrow their space, the search for the new home continued. In 1931, renowned architect Philip T. Shutty designed the synagogue's third and current home, which stands at 1589 Petrie Street, the northern edge of Midtown. Shutty was considered a master of classical design, and he is the architect behind Atlanta's most iconic buildings and homes. The Swan House, which is at the History Center, um, and the Academy of Medicine, which is on West Petrie, are just a few. Now, Shussey was a Protestant, but he worked closely with Marx to combine Jewish iconography inside the building. So it's a very classically designed building, um, but he added these Jewish touches. Not to word dump architecture terms on you, um, but the building has a portico, it has ionic columns, and a domed sanctuary. 
The floors inside are terrazzo and the woodwork is gilded. I have not seen the sanctuary with my own eyes, um, only pictures on the internet, but in my reading um, and in the photos, it did mention that the altar area, there's a huge arc made of carved gilded wood, so it looks golden, and then above sits a red globe, which represents the eternal light brought from the first synagogue in 1875. The globe hangs from a golden eagle that represents the great seal of the U.S., and it symbolizes Jewish freedom in America. The rear edition of the building was built in 1949, and I probably said this earlier, but this is the oldest existing synagogue in Atlanta, so you guys should definitely go see it. David Marks finally retired at the age of 74 after leading the temple for 51 years, through two world wars, the lynching of Leo Frank, and acting as an ethnic broker between the Jewish community and the Christian Atlantans. He had helped to organize the Atlanta Hebrew Orphans Home, the Schoen Free Kindergarten, the Federation of Jewish Charities, and a chapter of the National Council of Jewish Women. He would relinquish the rabbi position to Jacob Rothschild, often called Jack. Jack was born in Pittsburgh in 1811 and raised in a Reform congregation. He served as a chaplain in World War II, and after military service, he came to Atlanta in 1946, when the city's population numbered around 400,000, with 12,000 of them being Jewish. He saw a congregation that had survived Leo Frank, um, history with the KKK resurgence, the Colombians, talked about in episode 30, and many other hate groups. In his first year leading the temple, he was already preaching against Jim Crow laws and for civil rights. He was disturbed by the racial injustice, and over his first decade, he would continue to speak about these topics. Now, this all gained momentum in 1954, uh, when Brown v. Board of Education was handed down from the Supreme Court, and school desegregation was all of a sudden a thing that was going to be mandated by the federal government. Of course, we all know that did not happen in such a timely manner here in Atlanta, but that, my friends, is a story for another episode. Rothschild joins any committee there was, the Council on Human Rights, the Georgia Council for Human Relations. I mean, there were so many, I couldn't even list them here. He was also part of a large interfaith coalition of ministers that supported school desegregation, and he helped write their statement, which would be called the Minister's Manifesto. Now, he didn't sign it because it was a very Christian document, um, so he didn't put his name on it, but he very much helped to write it. In the wee hours of the morning of October 1958, the temple, Rabbi Rothschild, and the city of Atlanta would be changed forever. At 3.40 a.m., residents sleeping in their homes and apartments along Petrie Street would be jolted out of bed by a loud explosion. Now, the police are called, but all they really do is just cruise up and down Petrie. They don't go into any driveways, and so they report finding nothing. At about 7.30 in the morning, the temple custodian arrives to open up the building for religious school and discovers a 16-foot gaping hole in the side of the building. Stained glass windows have been destroyed, crushed menorahs littered the floor, glass was everywhere. But the sanctuary was safe. So it's actually protected if I understand this right. There was like an old safe that was in between the rabbi's office and the sanctuary. The damages, though, totaled $200,000. Mayor Hartsfield was on his way to church, and when he heard the news, he immediately went to the temple. He pledges a $1,000 reward from the city with 
for any information about the bombing. And by the afternoon, the amount grew to 8000 and by the weekend, Atlantans had contributed almost $20,000 to find the person or persons who committed this horrible hate crime. The city was actually united by their outrage, so Christians could not believe somebody would destroy a house of worship of any faith, um, and evangelical Christians actually believed that Jews were the chosen people of God, so they were extra horrified. It's kind of weird when you read about this, but everybody was really on board that this was a terrible thing. At home that evening, Mrs. Rothschild had been fielding condolence calls all day, but the one that came through at 6.15 p.m. was different. This voice on the other line says, quote, I am the one who bombed your church, end quote. And the voice belonged to George Allen Bright, who would be the first to stand trial for the bombing. But let me back up for one second. So after this event, more than 75 Atlanta detectives, along with the GBI and FBI agents, worked on finding those responsible. Within days from the bombing, five men are in custody, but only one would stand trial. Agents found a handwritten note from Bright, threatening the rabbi, and the idea was this was going to be an easy guilty verdict, and it would create a domino effect, and they would get the rest of the guys in prison. Now, if George Bright sounds familiar at all, I did talk about him in the Colombians episode, because he did join that neo-Nazi group in 1946. Throughout the rest of his life, he would join many similar hate groups um, like that. He would read anti-Semitic texts and just a lot of racist um, texts and books and pamphlets. His trial starts in December, and his defense lawyer is James Venable, who happens to be a white supremacist and KKK organizer. The Venable family actually has a really crazy history, and I hope to do an episode about them in the future. This trial is deemed a mistrial. The jurors could not agree, and he is tried again two weeks later. That verdict led to a not guilty ruling, and to this day, no one has been convicted of the crime. Now, this congregation, remember, the temple lived through Leo Frank. So they're having this, like, flashback of anti-Semitic court cases striking a nerve, and the rabbi gets up, and he's like, don't despair. You know, this, it's not the same thing. Justice will be served, you know, whether, even though we didn't have a person go to jail. In a paper I read, um, the rabbi's wife said something that summed up the event in a really interesting way. Um, and she said, quote, bombing was the needle that lanced our boil, end quote. And what she meant was that the following year in the city, Atlanta schools desegregated without incident. Four years after that, the rabbi helps to organize Nobel Peace Prize celebration dinner for Dr. King. And then Dr. Rothschild ends up doing like a eulogy um, at a commemorative ceremony after Dr. King's assassinated. So maybe all of these things wouldn't have been possible without the traumatic event of a domestic terror attack on the oldest Jewish synagogue. So there you have it, the story of the temple, two of the major historical rabbis that led it, and the way it's woven into the story of the city. Thank you everyone for listening. I want to give a shout out to those that sent me an email or a message recently sharing how much they like the podcast. Makes my day, so keep sending them. Um, if there's a topic you've always wanted to know about, definitely let me know. I will add it to the list or figure out how to put it into an episode. And I hope everyone has a great weekend. I'll talk to you next week. <laughs>